Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, at uh, the U.S. International Trade Commission uh, in Washington, that's uh, E Street, uh, just uh, over near the Capitol, within walking distance, representatives of U.S. Steel are uh, speaking before the Trade Commission looking for a revival of an argument against an antitrust complaint having to do with dumping of steel by rival Chinese manufacturers. And here to tell us more is Gordon Johnson. He is managing director and the head of alternative energy, as well as metals and mining equipment research. And he joins us on the phone. Great uh, great to have you with us, uh, uh, Gordon, at Axiom Capital Management. I beg your pardon. Um, uh, you know, I was looking at the, at the price movement today of U.S. Steel. We got the stock up nearly 4%. Do they just have to, like, wave a flag every now and again and say um, dumping, tariff, and then, you know, depending upon who's in power, it moves the stock? Yeah, I mean, that does indeed seem to be the case. And it seems like the Trump administration is definitely focused on China. Uh, But I think people need to look at... uh, the reality here, uh, the Obama administration uh, rained heavily down on China. In fact, uh, they hit China with a number of very aggressive tariffs. And if you look at total uh, Chinese imports as a percent of U.S. still imports, um, in 2015, 6.1%, 2014, 7.2%, it dropped all the way to 2.6% in 2016. So uh, the point is, even if you basically completely close China out from directly importing steel into the United States, it's going to have a very modest, if any, impact on the overall steel backdrop. And I think that the rhetoric or you know, comments coming out of the Trump administration uh, and impact on the markets, um, you know, people have this uh, very aggressive initial reaction, but it's just not, uh, the numbers just don't pan out. Well, and let's get to what U.S. Steel is actually doing. They filed a lawsuit against rival Chinese manufacturing uh, uh, companies saying that they they colluded to keep prices low to undercut American competitors. Uh, they refiled this, though, under a statute covering unfair trade practices, which usually oversees domestic issues. I mean, does U.S. Steel even have standing? Is there international law uh, that would bring Chinese manufacturing companies into this? I mean, is this lawsuit a no-go, basically? I mean, it, it looks like it is. I mean, a lot of the things they've done recently, um, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of the things, but some of the things they've done recently seem to be um, pretty pretty aggressive um, in, in trying to benefit from uh, what appears to be a pro-protectionist uh, uh, you know, U.S. administration. Look, at the end of the day, it seems like U.S. still, and this has been the case for a while, it seems like their strategy is effectively to benefit from protectionism, and, and that just doesn't work. We saw this um, in, late 90, in the late 90s, in the early 2000s uh, when President George W. Bush implemented a Section 201 tariff, which essentially put you know, taxes on every single steel import to the United States. Shortly thereafter, you, the European Union ruled this um, uh, that, that action um, unfair. Uh, and, and then shortly thereafter, you know, there were some uh, reactions by the European Union, and the U.S. pulled that back. Look, protectionism does not work because effectively the bulk of U.S. steel demand is in China. 50%, not U.S. steel, but global steel demand is in China. 50%. The U.S. is just roughly 7% of global steel demand. And more importantly, 
they still manufacturers sell to people like automakers and you know appliance makers, etc. And those guys have to compete globally. So if you drive up the cost of domestic steel, it's going to kill their customers and eventually kill them. So it just doesn't work. Well, Gordon, I just want to put the pers- uh, put the, the production in China in in, in perspective because uh, China's steel capacity, global steel making capacity, I believe, is bigger than the United States, European Union, Japan, and Russia. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they account for seventy five percent of all steel making growth as well. That's right, and and you know, look, here's the issue. Um, in 2008-9, China embarked upon a massive stimulus, and that stimulus was targeted primarily at building, essentially, offices and homes. And that benefited the global steel community massively. All these stocks went to the moon, and it was driven by China. And as a result, you had a lot of capacity created in China, steel capacity, to meet this boom in demand. Clearly, there's a lot of empty and ghost cities in China. It was inefficient uh, capital. But nonetheless, that created a lot of capacity. And and the problem is that capacity is still existent, but the demand is falling. So um, it's like, you know, when everything was working in the favor of the U.S. steel mills, they weren't complaining about what China was doing, which was creating a lot of this capacity, but now that things are you know turning around, now they're starting to complain. The reality is this: there's about 88 countries that ship steel into the United States. Without a Section 201 tariff, going after one individual country, we've already killed China. I mean, again, their imports have dropped from like two million tons a year to roughly 789 thousand tons a year, 2015 to 16. 6.1 percent of U.S. imports to 2.6. We've already killed them, but they're just going to ship their steel into another country, uh, and eventually it'll probably find its way into the United States. Right. And I think. That there's no way around that, and you know these U.S. steel mills continue to focus on China, and I think China's already—it's uh, a dead horse. Well, Gordon, I think it is interesting, though, and it is telling that U.S. steel is reviving some of these complaints at this point and asking the major steel trade organization, the U.S. International Trade Commission, in Washington to support its claims about collusion uh, by ma- uh, Chinese manufacturers. Do you think? that they are going to get a warm reception by politicians in Washington currently? Or do you think that the uh, geopolitical backdrop, including North Korea, has changed the calculus for President Trump and his advisors and that they will not take this uh, attempt by U.S. Steel seriously? Look, there's two things I'll highlight. I think there's no doubt that the issues in North Korea have changed Trump's view um, and stance on China. Clearly, in his um, while campaigning, he said he was going to label them a currency manipulator. He's pulled that back. Uh, but let's look at a, the, the second dynamic. We just had an OCTG, oil country tubular goods, ruling. Um, and that ruling came out with respect. It wasn't Chinese, but it was on um, South Korean, um, essentially, oil country tubular goods uh, still producers um, that, that service that sector, rather. And the overall result, when the result came out, the U.S. still stocks were battered because the market was expecting a 30 to 35 percent tariff because Navarro essentially sent a letter to uh, the Department of Commerce, and the tariff came out at roughly 13 percent for most guys, but the biggest guy was they dropped the tariff from 4 percent to 2 percent. So the reality is if you look at the rhetoric, he's pulled it back. And if you look at the most recent decision, it was not in favor of the U.S. steel mills. So, you know, we would be shorting the stocks, actually, on uh, strength around, uh, you know, Trump protectionism, et cetera, because I think that his desire for China to help solve the North Korean problem is much bigger than the rhetoric given in the campaign season. And I think that we're seeing that play out in reality. And just to note, right, I mean, you got U.S. steel down for the year, right? It's down about uh, a little bit more than 10 percent. 
Right, right. I mean, it's up big today right. um, on this rhetoric. But, um, you know, you just had you just, URI just reported earnings. URI is a big equipment rental company here in the U.S., 92% of their business in the U.S., uh, 8% in Canada. And they just dropped their expectation uh, for growth in the U.S. What was it? Uh, I think it was 2-4% before. Now they're getting to, I think, 2.4%. And in, in Canada, they were, yeah. they were looking for 4%. This is industrial growth, and they took it down to negative 0.3%. So I think... You know, the optimism on Trump, uh, I think reality is starting to set in. And I think that, you know, as earnings come out, I think that Q1 earnings for still guys are going right. to be good. But I think as some of the earnings come out for industrial guys, I think there's just some disappointment ahead. Gordon Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Gordon Johnson is Managing Director and Head of Alternative Energy Medials and Mining and Equipment Research at Axiom Capital Management in New York. This is Bloomberg. Uh, we talk a lot about President Trump's infrastructure spending plan. He talked about a $1 trillion program that he was going to implement to fix our roads and bridges and tunnels. Somebody with pretty good insight into what that plan might look like is David Congdon. He's chief executive officer of Old Dominion Freight Line, which is based in Thomasville, North Carolina, and it just celebrated its 25th year on the NASDAQ. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for uh, having me on with you today. So I wanted to start with the infrastructure spending plan because I know that you were co-chair, uh, you are the co-chair of the American <clears throat> Trucking Association's Infrastructure Task Force, and you have met with President Trump. Can you give us some insight into how feasible the infrastructure spending plan that he was talking about is and kind of where it is right now? Well, as we understand it now, uh, the the Trump administration is working on their infrastructure plan and hope to have um, something out uh, into Congress by the end of May. Is the, that's the latest uh, we hear. You know, as far as the total infrastructure, you know, of one trillion, uh, it's 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 a little bit hard for me to address all of it because I honestly don't believe that that uh, trucking and transport transportation, roads and bridges will will get, uh, um, but perhaps maybe a third of that. Um, that <clears throat> excuse me, got a frog in my throat, but that's that's uh, basically that happens to everyone. Where, where we where we are on that. Uh, but the uh, you know the cost of under investment in our highways and bridges is, is absolutely huge. Congestion on the interstate systems alone are costing the trucking industry nearly uh, $50 billion, and it's estimated over $100 billion for all motorists. Uh, automobile repairs due to potholes are costing the average motorist over $500 per year per motorist for a grand total of $112 billion. Roadside crashes. Um, are causing due to you know antiquated designs and poor entrance and exit ramps or another eighty billion. Right. Anyone who's been in traffic understands how how sort of challenged U.S. roads are. But David, do you think that we really are going to see uh, material change or material uh, construction in the next three years that could potentially even support <clears throat> your business? 
I certainly uh, hope so. Uh, our infrastructure task force, which is made up of 11 CEOs from from small truck lines all the way with less than 100 trucks up to the nation's largest truck lines, uh, is working with the Trump administration and uh, uh, leaders in, in Congress, uh, both the Senate and the House side, uh, to uh, try to shape an infrastructure bill that addresses the most critical problems of the trucking industry and provides for the most immediate and sustainable uh, financing solutions. And we think we've got a pretty good, uh, uh, a pretty good plan or roadmap uh, to be able to uh, come up with the money that's needed uh, to accomplish this. All right, I, uh, Mr. Congdon, I'm wondering if I could just attack this this topic in just a slightly different way, because I, every now and again, I'm on the road and I see one of your 30,000 tractor trailers all across the country, and they have the Major League Baseball uh, 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 you know, a uh, logo on 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 the side. Uh, you move the teams of Major League Baseball. It's like a, a you know moving you know, chessboard or something. I mean, because you know you move them from spring training uh, back to their right. I mean, I'm. This is That's, something that you're. This is detail, and I mean, my goodness, moving is just such a stressful thing for anybody. Imagine doing this to the level that you guys at Old Dominion Freight uh, do that. What are? Do you feel that you're being heard by the right people to fix some of these? I mean, no one is for potholes, right? No one says, "Okay, no, 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 we love potholes." No one ever says that. So, is there? Are there some things that you feel that you being heard by the right people in the right place at the right time? Considering that we that you have Donald Trump as president, that will help fix some of these very basic things that you've just described, and that obviously you're in a better position to tell uh, to explain what's going on than than you know someone just reading a paper. I believe we are in an excellent position to be heard. The meeting that we had with uh, President Trump, Vice President Pence, uh, just a couple. What's that weeks, like? Can you shed some? Can you just tell us what's it like to even be there? What does it feel like? Well, it was an it was an exciting day. It was uh it was actually monumental. It was the first time in the history of the American Trucking Association for ATA to have two trucks on the lawn at the White House, uh, represented by eleven uh, top CEOs from our industry and twelve of our uh, top uh, truck drivers uh, representing the America's road team and the ability to meet with the president uh, and vice president opened the door for uh, further discussions. Obviously, the day that we were there was the day that the uh, health <clears throat> the health care right. and replace bill was supposed to be voted on and and that was uh, top of mind uh, for the for President Trump that particular day but uh, we have had subsequent we being the truck the ATA uh, president uh, Chris Spear uh, the uh, senior vice president Bill Sullivan and others in leadership at ATA have had some meaningful discussions uh, with uh, some of uh, Trump's advisors, and we are. Uh, what specifically would you like to have happen, uh, or you believe would be helpful to their mission to uh, improve the infrastructure? What What can people do who hear you speak, and uh, well, here's, here's and, the, the, and all the people that that are into baseball because you're you're, you're moving those baseball teams. Well, the baseball teams are are important for us, uh, but but not as important as the. Uh, uh, 90,000 shippers that uh, that uh, we have 
um, uh, giving us revenue. But right, your customers. Yeah, our customers. Uh, baseball is a very small part of it. But here's the deal. The annual cost of underinvestment in, in, in our infrastructure is costing motorists over $1,400 per year. And what we are pr- proposing, uh, what we are proposing uh, is a Build America infrastructure fee to be added at the uh, to the rack cost per gallon uh, of just twenty cents, and and have this thing indexed to fuel economy and inflation. Twenty cents a gallon is really not very much. You recall when we were all paying uh, four and five dollars a gallon for gas. Uh, twenty cents a gallon only represents an annual cost of roughly eighty dollars per motorist to address a fourteen hundred dollar per motorist problem. To me, that is a good return on investment. And this infrastructure fee at the rack, I don't know if you know what a rack is, yes. but, but there are 1,300 active uh, terminals, uh, fuel racks across the country owned by only 255 owners, and they collect and pay the uh, taxes. Thanks for the, we got to the, leave it there. David Congdon, I'm sorry, the chief executive of Old Dominion Freightline. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Well, corrosion. Corrosion is a $2.2 trillion problem worldwide. And our next guest is trying to solve it. Christina Lamanzi is the president and the chief executive and the co-founder and a physicist and just happens to be in charge of Maju Metal based in Seattle. But she joins us here in our studio. Christina, thank you very much for being here. Um, Corrosion, uh, I guess we could say rust, is a problem that is never really going to go away because of just the nature of certain types of uh, chemical and metal reactions. Uh, Unless, of course, I guess we call metal. Tell us what you're doing to fight this battle. Absolutely. So we are, um, first of all, trying to address this huge problem that today represents about uh, 4.1% of the gross domestic product in the United States. So we spend a lot of money and a lot of energy addressing this challenge of corrosion. And we think we can reduce that impact on our economy. We're doing it by introducing an entirely new class of materials into the marketplace. And that class of materials uh, is what we call nanolaminated alloys. They're basically like metallic plywood. So they're layered materials. But in our case, the layers are on the nanometer scale. Um, and maybe even more profoundly impactful is that we're we're having in order to bring these materials to market to revolutionize the manufacturing process for metals as well. So we have a process that doesn't use heat anymore. We're actually using electricity as the input form of energy to manufacture metals directly. So before we get into the specifics, I'm wondering so far, I mean, the company's been around for a, a couple of years and mm-hmm. this technology has been around for a couple of years. How has the demand grown? 
by industrial companies? Well, we when we first started out with Modumetal, it was just a concept. So we were really just trying to figure out how to bring this this technology from a science into really a manufacturing process. Now we're working with uh, with major oil and gas companies to bring it into very large-scale market applications. So the market has really embraced the technology. And we talk about the cost of corrosion. It's something that impacts a number of major industries. So oil and gas is just one example. Infrastructure, construction, I mean, transportation, you name it. Uh, the pain is there for a lot of major industries. So it's been, it has been embraced across the board uh, in, in terms of its applications. Well, I also just want to congratulate you, Christina uh, Lamazny. Uh, you are a finalist for the Edison Award. So uh, good luck uh, with that. I know you're here in New York. You've been named a finalist for, for that. Uh, can you. you use, let's say, the Coast Guard uh, as an example? Obviously, they must deal, as most uh, ship owners must deal with corrosion and rust. Tell us about using Modumetal technology for the Coast Guard? That's such a great example. In fact, we've done some work with the Coast Guard. We've deployed technology with them. As as you mentioned, the Coast Guard operates in a very corrosive environment. So they, they're typically operating in marine environments where there's salt water, oftentimes high temperature. So on the coast of, uh, of let's say, North Carolina, Florida, things like that, um, where you have accelerated corrosion because of heat. And, um, and so corrosion is degrading the fleet, even, even as they're operating and building new structures, they're having to deal with the degradation of the old. We've actually done some work with the Coast Guard on something as simple as connectors, fasteners, like, you know, bolts. It turns out that's a, that's a a critical point of uh, a failure for uh, for some of these these structures, and so basically, what we've done in in some cases, we actually just coat conventional steels with our nano layered alloys, and we can extend the life as much as ten to we've demonstrated thirty times increase in performance at an equivalent cost to like a conventional zinc. So it's a dramatic difference in terms of the longevity of that product in the field, the safety factor associated with that uh, connector, and we basically are keeping cost at parity. So talking about that cost, I mean, how much would it cost to uh, nano-laminate, say, uh, all the bolts in a ship? <laughs> and uh, how, how, do you, how exactly do you nano-laminate something? Yeah, the way to think about it, I, I think, is it we're introducing a new structure. So it's the nano lamination. It, it's um, to kind of geek out on the science a little bit. We're kind of, we're galvanically coupling to similar metals when we make these layered alloys, and we're controlling that galvanic couple, and that's what's extending the life of of the product in a corrosive environment. We're doing it, though, with the same basic raw materials. So from a cost driver standpoint, we really have the same basic costs as a conventional, let's say, hot dip galvanize process. We're just fundamentally changing the structure, and that's resulting in a huge impact in, in terms of performance. Are you planning on taking the pub uh, company public? <laughs> right now, we're private, and uh, and we're really growing the business to try to bring the product into the market in a very, very big way. 
But where are you getting financing from? So we do um, we do a lot of work with uh, within the oil and gas sector, as I mentioned. And the fun part for us is that a lot of our customers have actually joined us as partners. Um, so today we're jointly owned by Chevron, ConocoPhillips, BP, all of whom were customers, and then they became partners in the venture. Uh, we're also jointly owned by the Founders Fund out of uh, Silicon Valley. And so we just have a great team of partners that have joined us in this venture. Christina Lamazny, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really a fascinating development. She's president and chief executive officer and co-founder of Madu Metal, which is based in Seattle, but she is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And she gave us uh, business cards that are made out of nano laminated metal. Pretty cool. Pam, I think I, I, think I need some metal. <laughs> thank you. There you go. That was the sound of it. Well, Republicans have come up with a replacement to the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010. Uh, it is going to be uh, aired in a hearing later this month. I want to bring in Nathan Dean, who's a government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who's going to tell us what's in this replacement to the Dodd-Frank Act. But before we get there, Nathan, is this thing dead on arrival or does this thing have legs? So it's dead on arrival when, when you think about it, when it's becoming law. It will pass the House. It should pass the House. It should pass the House by August seals see a lot of headlines of talking about this will pass, but it's dead on arrival in the Senate. This this is the Republican kitchen sink bill. There are just too many provisions in here to get uh, bipartisan support in the Senate. And because the filibuster still exists, you know, this, there's, this, this bill really doesn't have any chance over there in the Senate. Okay. So given the fact that it's probably dead on arrival in the Senate, should we care about it? There are provisions in this thing that we should care about. It's a starting point. It's a negotiation. So uh, leaving a lot of this bill is designed about this 10% leverage ratio. Banks need to go from you know around 65 to 10%. For the big banks, that could cost them around $420 billion for the eight largest. But there are other provisions in this bill that I'd look at. You know, Look at how they're going to change the stress testing process. Uh, look how they're going to make relief for smaller and community-sized banks. But a lot of the controversial provisions in here, repealing the Volcker Rule, changing the CFBB, uh, re- repealing the Durbin Amendment, which would cost the banks, you know, it did cost the banks billions of dollars in interchange fees. You know, those things are just too controversial. They're not going to pass Elizabeth Warren. They're not going to pass the other Democrats. And so I think it's more importantly to see what's going to come out of the Senate in their review. And we're expecting that sometime in the next couple months. The Senate has, uh, of course, uh, the uh, Banking Committee and Senator Mike Crapo, he's the Republican from Idaho, is the chairman. Can you give us some insight into his thinking and then maybe kind of reference a previous bill that was introduced by the former banking chairman, uh, Senator Richard uh, Shelby, a Republican from Alabama? Yeah. So, you know, the Senate right now is conducting a review of Dodd-Frank. They actually went out to the industry and said, send us comments. And this was a bipartisan effort, both Mike Crapo and Senator Sherrod Brown, the ranking member from Ohio. And the bank comments and the industry comments have been piling in. Goldman Sachs, for example, just submitted their comments. Uh, Bloomberg News did an article on it, and it talked about changing the stress test, changing the calculation of a leverage ratio. So a lot of this stuff, I think, could generate bipartisan support. Uh, But really, what happens in the Senate, we expect them to put together their own bill. You know, you mentioned Senator Richard Shelby. 
his big push last year was changing the SIFI threshold. He wanted the SIFI threshold to go from $50 billion to $500 billion. Senator Mike Crapo, he wants that changed as well. $500 billion is probably too high. You know, that $500 billion would, inco- would allow PNC and U.S. Bank, for example, to shed their, shed their SIFI designation. And to be clear, SIFI is significantly in, uh, important uh, financial institution. Correct. And if you're labeled to SIFI, it means you get a lot more uh, capital and liquidity requirements, and then you have to go through the stress test. So, you know, whether that that threshold ends up at 250 billion or it moves to a case by case designation, you know, we do expect the Senate because this is one of Senator Crapo's uh, uh, key things that he wants to work on. We do think that SIFI threshold is going to be in there. So, Nathan, as you were saying, this is sort of a kitchen sink effort by Republican congressmen. Uh, But the interesting thing is banks are not too excited about this bill. It's called the Financial Choice Act. It would replace the Dodd-Frank Act, which set out to prevent another uh, bank-driven financial crisis like the one that we saw in 2008. Why aren't big banks excited? Probably for two reasons. One, you know, like we mentioned, going to the 10% leverage ratio, that's going to increase capital requirements for largest banks. You know, BI's credit analyst Arnold Kukuna did analysis where it's $420 billion. For JP Morgan, that's $110 billion alone. It's probably not something they want to do. Secondly, they probably understand that this bill is dead on arrival. And so why waste the political capital fighting for a full repeal of the Volcker rule when you know it's not going to happen? You know, you hear a lot of comments coming from Jamie Dimon and other bankers saying, you know, we just need to tweak the Volcker rule and we need to play around with the market making exemption, you know, but in spirit, you know, they they say they're okay with it. So uh, I think the banks are waiting to see what comes from the Senate. You know, one thing to keep in mind, you know, Chairman Henseling, he's term limited at the end of this term. So he's got two years to essentially put something out there. And if not, he's going to have to move off of the uh, chairmanship. So, uh, you know, we still don't think Dodd-Frank is going to be a year one issue. I think you'll see something come out from the Senate later this year, but I I, I still think Dodd-Frank will be a two year issue. So if this is not a year one issue. I mean, are there specific deadlines that they have to meet in order to get the ball rolling on this? so no, there's no specific deadlines. I think that, you know, one thing that we are telling our clients is watch out for the debt ceiling debates and the government shutdown debates later this year, not the April one, but maybe in September, because that's the time that's ripe for amendments. You know, back in 2014, Republicans inserted this amendment that repealed the swaps push out provision. They did it three days before a government shutdown. They sent it up to the White House and they told President Barack Obama sign it or the government's going to be shut down. And President Obama did sign it. So this uh, this tactic of putting an amendment out there, uh, you know, if I wanted to repeal the Volcker Rule, for example, maybe I submit it right before the debt ceiling uh, is about to hit and see what happens. So we're just telling clients to be very careful about those deadlines, probably in September, August timeframe. But in terms of just repealing Dodd-Frank, this can go on to 2018. There's no really no, no deadline there. All right. So if, there, if there's no deadline, just quickly, Nathan, um, why are the Republicans even bothering to do this? They keep it in the news cycle. I think that, you know, they need to show that they're doing something. You know, this is there's been a lot of work done on repealing Dodd-Frank. They've, this has been going back to 2010. There's been over 250 bills that have passed the House that have said something. So I, I think this is to keep the ball rolling. And, you know, if they can move on with infrastructure and tax reform and health care, then, you know, I, I think you'll have the uh, pieces in place. All right. I want to thank you very much for giving us all the information. Nathan Dean is government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington. And you can follow Nathan Dean on Twitter at Nathan Dean DC. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.